This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, Trevor Paglin on the art of the security state. You know, in Hollywood, there might be a UFO crash and they go in with teams and they clean up all of it and there's no trace. That doesn't happen. People are not that good. If you are building a secret airplane, you have to have a secret factory. You need construction permits and hazmat teams. So, you know, there's a whole world of stuff adjacent to a secret project where it intersects the real world. If you see something with a dragon in space, that probably signals intelligence satellite. And so this was super interesting to me because the fundamental question is, how do you represent that which must not be represented? Trevor Paglin, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to meet you. You too. It's great to meet you, uh, especially because I've been uh, an admirer uh, and kind of um, in awe of a lot of your work (laughs) for several years. Um, You are a visual artist. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some of our listeners may have heard of you, um, uh, who has done a lot of work around the themes of surveillance and national security and secrecy and the sort of the black world of classified government programs, um, which may strike people as a little abstract when they first think about it. But um, what I wanted to talk to you about first is how I came to know your work. And I think listeners are going to get a big kick out of this. Um, You wrote a book in 2008 called I Could Tell You, But Then You Would Have to Be Destroyed by Me, (laughs) which is such a great title, Emblems from the Pentagon's Black World. Uh, And this is obviously an audio podcast, so people can't see this, but I have a copy of this book here, and it is a collection of patches and insignia from various military units or classified government programs that are really interesting pieces of art in their own right, but are kind of coded, uh, filled with references to this kind of hidden world that is uh, contained in the classified budgets and the annexes of the Pentagon, where we spend money on things like stealth aircraft and drones and electronic warfare. And you have kind of made a study out of collecting these things as as artifacts and as pieces of art and, and really kind of probing into their histories as well. So I just wanted to start with this as a way into your work. How did you get turned on to this world of these insignia and these patches and coins that are visual representations of things that we're not actually supposed to see and know about? Yeah, so it's a it's a great question. So I was um, at the time studying geography at UC Berkeley, and I was writing a thesis about um, the kind of spaces of secrecy, thinking about if you're going to start a new secret airplane project or whatever, how do you do it? You know, what is, how do you, how do you build it? How do you create the institutions? How do you create the hangars and the factories in a, in a way that, um, where you try to conceal what it is that you're doing. And I was interviewing a guy named Peter Merlin, who was a guy who's for lack of a better word, kind of an aerospace archaeologist. He goes to find crashed plane sites and, you know, look at the, he looks at the visual and material artifacts from aerospace programs. And he has a particular interest in, you know, crashed secret airplanes or stealth fighters and old SR-71s, that sort of thing. And I was at his house and he brought me into his study and it was just filled with like mugs and coins and patches and all of these, um, really the visual culture of secrecy and of black projects. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't really pay it much mind at first. I was looking, it's like these patches of dragons and swords. And I was like, this is, you know, this crap, you know? And he was like, no, 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 no. Trust me. Like you need to look at this stuff, <laughs> you know? And, and he started showing me the ways in which information about the programs was encoded into the visual language that they were using. So for example, there was a, um, a, demonstrator called the bird of prey which is a secret airplane that flew in the late 90s and the patch for it had a you know eagle head on it and had a sword in the foreground and the sword had a very unusual handle and he said the handle of this sword is actually the shape of this airplane 
And he says, if you look at all of these patches, you know, there's very often clues in them. You know, if you see something with a dragon in space, that probably is a signals intelligence satellite. And if there's seven stars in the patch, that means there's probably seven other satellites in this constellation and what have you. And so this was super interesting to me because the fundamental question is how do you represent that which must not be represented? And this is actually a very old thing in the history of art. You can go look at old Christian iconography. You can look at Masonic imagery. You can look at, you know, Renaissance allegory. You know, in fact, this is probably more in line with the history of art kind of wow. historically on a global scale than contemporary art in, in many ways. And so that that really sparked my interest. I started collecting these things myself. It's, um, Peter was really helpful in putting the collection together. I started going to bars where pilots would hang out, you know, who are flying these kind of things. You just look at the walls of the bar and they, all these weird patches and you start to learn that language a little bit and you start to, you know, it's, it's one of the few places where you can kind of get a glimpse into that world, not only in terms of the kinds of things that are created within it, but also the culture itself. And a lot of these patches and iconography are much more colorful than you would find in other parts of the military. And the reason for that is you know, let's say you're in the 82nd Airborne or some, something like that. You have an office of heraldry in the army and they say, well, your lineage goes back to the Civil War or what have you. And so you're going to have these are the images that go in that patch. Well, that office of heraldry is not cleared to know about black units or black projects or what have you. And some guys who'd worked on these projects said, well, we can't just have a uniform that has no patches on it. We had to have something. I mean, that would look really weird. We got to tell them who we are. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You're like little green men or something. <laughs> and so the, the the images then tend to be self-generated. So mm -hmm. they were in if they're in a unit together, someone might draw what their proposal for the patch would be, and then the guys in the unit would vote on it, and that would become the patch. You know? So it's it's a, it's kind of outsider art. Yeah. It's kind of outside the normal chains of command in the military, and so you end up with these very creative and colorful. Uh, symbols, I guess. Yeah. And they're really, I mean, the, the, the patches are, they're vivid. I mean, and you do see sort of themes that keep cropping up. I mean, the dragon is one that you, you mentioned and like the, the big outstretched wings kind of reflective of the big arrays on signals, intelligence satellites. Um, you know, you see wizards showing up a lot. You see skulls, you see swords, uh, you know, skunks, uh, you know, Greek iconography. And it does start to feel like there's like the deeper you get into it, you must have felt like you were sort of starting to like reach this level of fluency and like you're stepping behind this curtain or something. And in a way that the, the people, the artists who create these things intended, they want, once you know the language, that's kind of your, your access and your entry point, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's absolutely intended to, to create a language where if you're an insider, you understand what that is. And if you're an outsider, it's opaque to you. And again, this is a classic trope of the, these, these genres of art. Yeah. What is it, do you think, for me, maybe about these particular insignia, or maybe there's lessons from, from art history, that drives people to create visual representations and information about something that is by its nature supposed to be hidden in secret? Like, why advertise that you're working for this, you know, Lockheed stealth plane project when the whole point is that no one's supposed to know about the stealth plane project? You know, it's really funny. I think a lot about... You know, when I was a kid, you kind of create secret societies with your friends. Yeah. And the first thing that you do after you've created that secret society is tell everybody that you have a secret society <laughs> and that they're not a part of it, right? right. So in, 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 in a way to preserve that secrecy, you need to advertise the fact that it exists, right? And it creates a, a weird kind of cohesion, right? This shared secret. Now, I might be overcomplicating it, you know, a little bit here, but I don't think so much, actually. I do think there is a kind of camaraderie that develops not only through the sharing of a secret, but through the advertisement of the fact that you're sharing a secret. 
Right, right. And it's, and it's kind of like also, I think you write this in the introduction to the book, it's even a way of advertising to people, you know, don't ask because there's only so much I can tell you. Like if you're almost advertising that you have a secret, it's a way of like preempting people from asking too much about the secret. And you know this so much from your reporting is people who work on these projects love to tell you about what they can't tell you about. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They would love to. Um, so there's lots of like symbols and things that show up repeatedly in, in, the, um, in the insignia. I thought maybe we could talk about a couple of them. One is lightning bolts. You see lightning bolts a lot. So what does a lightning bolt mean if you see this on a patch? What's it probably suggest? Yeah. So a lightning bolt is a, is a pretty consistent symbol that you see across um, – Air Force projects and in uh, cyber operations projects. It generically just kind of means um, cyber warfare or electronic warfare, right? So that might mean in the Air Force, it might mean things like um, electronic countermeasures or doing testing of electronic warfare systems. In the NSA context, it can mean, you know, offensive, you know, hacking operations or cyber operations. So for example, you see the insignia of the it used to be called the 319th Network Warfare Squadron. I think was the um, the NSA's Tailored Access Operations Group. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, the yeah. super hackers, yeah. the super hackers, right? So their symbol is a dragon who's holding a lightning bolt in one hand and holding a key in the other hand, mm. right? So it's like decrypting things and you know attacking oh, yeah. things. And he's a dragon, so there maybe is a satellite in there someplace too. Um, wizards also show up a lot, which gives it a sort of D and D quality. Uh, which uh, w- what does the wizard usually? It's, it's all D and D stuff. It's all D and D. This is the lexicon underlying the lingua franca of all these people. They all grew up playing D and D in the basement. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, the, I think the wizard tends to be a little bit more of a generic symbol it's it's you know and and these things change a lot based on the context you mm-hmm. know? um but usually something to do with like development or research and, and some of them i've found too some of the most delightful ones are ones that are just largely blank i mean there are even like patches that are just black and it, it's it, it's 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 sort of I mean, it's sort of very tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? It's kind of, it's very self-referential to the idea that, like, I could tell you, but I'd have to shoot you. Oh, yeah, it, completely. And, then, you know, that's, you know, a good quarter of the genre is having a black patch that says, <laughs> I, I could tell you, but then I have to kill you or have a question mark on it or something like that. Since you've been um, publishing on this and incorporating it into your art, have you started to hear more from people in those worlds and, like, who call you and they've got a patch they want to show you or a challenge coin they want to share? Oh yeah, completely, completely. It's, it's, you know, it's, again, it's a really fun medium to play with because in many pay- cases, you know, the, the patches aren't secret, right? Um, there, there's some exceptions to that, but it, it is something that people can share with you. And so when the book came out, a lot of people got in touch with like, oh man, you got to include patch I made for this project or that. Um, I'd done a TV show and the host asked me what, if there's any patches out there that I was looking for. And I had heard that there was a patch that had the the head of an alien and then had a chain around the alien and had a text that was written in Klingon around the edge. And then I said, I know this patch exists. I'd love to have it. And the, the guy who made the patch and got in touch with me, was like, oh, you mentioned the patch I made on, on TV. I can't tell you what it is, but I'll send you one. Um, so it's it, it's fun, yeah. You, you hear you're a lot from people that worked on these, and then you know I heard when that book came out that there was it was kind of a topic of dinner party discussions in the intelligence and in parts of the military community where they would just talk about what I got right and didn't get right in terms of those patches because in many cases I could sort of verify it, but not all the way, and so right. it's and and I write that in the introduction where I say you know a lot of this is really speculative. it's grounded in research but you know this as as you know when you're researching this stuff it's very hard to you know definitively verify things right yeah the the patch with the alien the chain around his neck is it's in the book this patch for the alien technology exploitation division which i gather is not really a thing per se but um uh, the klingon translates to don't ask Right, uh, but no, that was great. Uh, talk, you mentioned Peter Merlin as being the guy who was sort of this collector and this kind of you know 
archivist, maybe we could think of this, the guy who's out literally finding pieces of debris from crashed planes in the desert. And you have some of that in another book that's from the archives of Peter Merlin, aviation archaeologist. Talk a little bit about him and how did he get turned on to this? I mean, at one point you talk about how he had an entire operating plan for Area 51. Yeah, he did. <laughs> um, so... Peter's a, a real interesting guy. He grew up in Southern California and was just really obsessed with aerospace and um, just just endlessly interested in it. He ended up becoming a historian at Edwards Air Force Base for, for NASA. So he was working at Edwards and working in that context. He was just, by nature, just an archivist. He just collects stuff as much as he can. And... One of the, so he has a particular interest in black projects and one of the kind of operating theses that he works with is that when stuff happens in the world, it kind of gives off debris in, in, in many, many forms. Uh, if you are building a, you know, secret airplane, you have to have a secret factory, which means that you need to have, you know, construction permits and, you know, hazmat teams. So, you know, there's a whole world of stuff that happens adjacent to a secret project where it, where it intersects the real world. So that could be, again, things involved in the planning of the project. You know, when things go wrong an airplane crashes, um, patches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's, those are the kinds of materials that he looks for. And when he goes, for example, to investigate a, airplane crash site, even if it's a secret airplane, he says, you know, the world is not totally efficient, right? You know, in Hollywood, there might be a UFO crash and they go in with teams and they clean up all of it and there's no trace. That doesn't happen. People are not mm -hmm. that good. You know, he said, if you go to a place where something has happened, it's made a mark on the world, you can find those marks. And so, yeah, he did that. So that, so that methodology also extends to documents and, um, he did have the standard operating procedure from Area 51 for the 1960s. He found it, I think, just in the CIA archives. Mm. Another one of his kind of theses is that you should not approach the study of black projects assuming that everything is secret. Mm. You know, you should assume that you can actually find out a lot more about them than not. Um, mostly as a way to kind of get you going. It's like, don't be, um, don't imagine that there's this wall that like, this is where the secrecy starts and the world ends that, that, that line is very fuzzy. And if you try to find that gray space, you can find a lot of artifacts for lack of a better word. Yeah. And there's so much that is contained. I mean, I think, you know, you've used this research, I think at the national archives, I mean, there's kind of a rolling declassification of things, you know, maybe decades old. But sometimes if you just know where to look, you can actually find a pretty surprising amount of stuff, no? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the CIA archives at the National Archives are actually incredible. I mean, they're they're way easier to use than the rest of the archive. And you can just go and type keywords. And, you know, I don't think you want to use a keyword like, you know, secret airplane or what have you. Right. But if you start using <laughs> words like, you know, operating area, Nevada, blah, 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 you, things start to show up and you can get some context. And, you know, maybe the the secret search term is redacted, but there'll be a lot of stuff that's not redacted. You get a, get, you get a sense of what you're looking at. One of the things that really impresses me about your work and, 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 and Peter Merlin's kind of body of research too, is that this is a world in which, you know, it is it is rife with conspiracy theories, right? I mean, like Area 51 or Groom Lake, I mean, I think it's actually properly called the test bed facilities in Nevada. That pops up again and again and again. You know, this iconography is filled with sinister looking images of skulls and wizards and all this kind of stuff. Um, but really what you're doing is just kind of peeling this back and seeing like, no, this isn't a conspiracy. Like this is like, this is these are actual funded programs. Yes, mm -hmm. there's a lot of secrecy and kind of, cloudiness around it, but it's not really a conspiracy. I mean, what, what is, is, is part of the, the, the objective here that you have as an artist is trying to just shine this light into a world where, because it's so opaque, sometimes people's imagination gets away with it, or get, runs away with themselves? I mean, well, I think that's where it's interesting from the kind of artistic perspective is that you're looking into something 
you can't make sense of it. You know that there's something there. And so it kind of keeps you in this zone where you're questioning what it is that you're looking at kind of mm-hmm. constantly. And to me, that's that's what I get most excited about, about yeah. art when you're showing something and you kind of can't make sense of it, but you want to make sense of it. You're trying to make sense of it. And to me, that's that's the moment that's interesting. Conspiracy theory theory goes the next step and says, okay, we're going to try to make sense of this. We're going to try to put these connections together and concoct a story. And in many cases, you can't do that while being intellectually honest, right? So, you know, I try to be really, you know, have a lot of self-discipline in saying these are the things that I can reasonably say about this. I can't reasonably say more than that. Right. And so that, that question of conspiracy there, that is a part of the aesthetics of it, I guess. And that kind of naturally occurs when you're using this kind of visual language, but it's something that I really try to stay away from, um, for a lot of reasons. And I, and I think we've seen how dark that logic of conspiracy can get, you know, especially in the last few years. Absolutely. And in, in hearing you talk about the way that you're sort of in that place where you can sort of understand what something means, but you're kind of in this space where it's not entirely clear and that kind of the thrill you get from that, that resonates with me a lot as a reporter because, I mean, so often we are, we're finding facts and we're piecing together a puzzle and we're just on the verge of understanding something and on the verge of revelation, but you're still in that place where it's not quite there and there's this inherent tension and mystery. And that is tremendously exciting, right? And as journalists, we don't take the next step and say, you and here's publish that though, right? right, exactly. <laughs> right. It's like your mind can go there, but you can only show people what you know. But I find that space to be incredibly exciting too. And that, yeah. as I'm hearing you talk, that's, that's, the, that's the energy I'm getting when I look at a lot of your work too, is that, you know, you're like, what exactly does it mean? I want to know more, but we only know as much as we do. And yet what we see is so vivid and so revealing too. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that is such a, that's a huge difference, but what, between what I'm able to do as an artist and and what I think you can do as a reporter, like as a reporter, you can't publish that. Like that's not a story. If you say, I have these materials, they seem like they belong together. I don't really know how there's obviously something behind it in your research. You're getting to that place but that's you have to go further or you need to drop that. I can hold that place as an artist and I can be like, just let's look at this and let's share this space together. And it's it's funny because you oftentimes you find things that I think of as being like emergent allegories, for lack mm. of a better word. So I was working on a project with my friend AC Thompson, who's an investigative journalist. We were doing a project years ago about the CIA black sites. And I was looking at front companies that had been created to do logistics for them. It's very, very technical in the weeds thing. But when I was looking, I was pulling all the corporate documents for these front companies and looking at the people who are on the boards and how they had signed the documents. And so it would be that, you know, there would be someone named Colleen Bornt, for example, who'd be on the board of all these companies would sign these documents, but the signature would be different on every document that they'd signed. Oh, wow. And I was showing that to my friend. I was like, we, this is incredible. We got to use this. He's like, this is crap. This is nothing. You're just showing that this is a fake company. And I was like, yeah, but you're, when you're seeing these signatures next to each other, you're seeing what's going on in a way that it, for me anyway, is satisfying in a different way than just writing. Oh yeah. There's these front companies and their people on the boards aren't real. Totally. Because I mean, as I'm, just, I'm just thinking that if, if, through as if I were telling that story, there's me telling you as the reader, in my research, I discovered these are front companies. But then in seeing the signature, you're seeing the intention of the person behind it, the, the mm-hmm. deliberate attempt to obscure what the true origins are of this. And that, to me, makes it just so much more relatable as a yeah. reader. Yeah. 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 Um, so let's talk about the artist a little bit. So where where did you grow up and where are you from originally? Yeah, so I actually grew up in the Air Force. Um, my dad was an ophthalmologist. Um, we lived in California. We lived in Germany for a while. And then I, you know, when I went to college, I went to Berkeley. And then I, so I lived in the Bay Area for about 20, 25 years. 
then moved to New York's. Well, I went then, so I did my undergrad at Berkeley. I went to art school in Chicago, um, went back to Berkeley after that, did a PhD in geography. And I've been living sort of between New York and Berlin since yeah. then. So you're an Air Force brat. You grew I'm up an Air Force that. brat. You grew yeah. up around the culture that you're kind of steeped in right now. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that made it very comfortable for me to do this kind of research and kind of travel oh, yeah. in those circles. Just, you know, I know what that is. You know, I know what that's what that's like. You know, I, yeah. It probably wasn't as as mysterious as it might be to somebody who was uninitiated in military culture. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just um you know, the, the military really is its own culture and its own geography, really. I mean, if you're in the in the service, you know about there's bases in Korea, there's bases in Germany. Your sense of what the footprint of the United States is, is really different than if you grow up in the continental United States outside of it. Did, growing up in the military can often be a very kind of conservative upbringing, but you were obviously in the mm -hmm. Bay Area and you go to Berkeley. So is there, did, 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 were you the black sheep of the family there or how did that work? I, I mean, I think my family ended up being pretty creative. Like my brother's a screenwriter. Um, so I think there was, I think it did definitely maybe kick in a little bit of rebelliousness in the mm -hmm. sense of like, I want to, whatever, I want to do the opposite of this, <laughs> you know, right. I was growing up. <laughs> so like, what is the opposite of, you know, going to school meetings and some colonel shows up and tells you some bullshit, you know, I was right. like, I, I, you see Berkeley, that's the opposite yeah, yeah, of the right. military as far as I can right, tell right, I'm going right, there. Right. <laughs> yeah, you, you were not signing up for the Air Force. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if, you, if your parents are still alive, but if they are have members of your family seen your work and what do they what do they think about it oh yeah i think they you know they're they're really supportive of it you know it's it's they, they've been retired for a long time and you know i think i think at first it was challenging more you know when you grow up in the military you you kind of have to be inculcated in that mindset to a certain extent in order to really be able to do your job and succeed at it um, and when you become detached from it, you can get a little bit more perspective, you know, yeah. and there's, there's things about that culture that are really great. Um, but as an organization that is really, you know, by necessity has to put a real premium on coherence, there's not a lot of room at all for nonconformity, as you can imagine. Well, which is one of the things that's so interesting about the the patches and the insignia. It's a place where kind of creativity and irreverence ekes out a little bit, yeah. uh, and it, they're playful and they're kind of you know sometimes they're silly and uh, and they're fun. But they're showing a kind of a, a spirit and a personality behind this you know edifice of a bureaucracy. Absolutely, absolutely. Did you did you always want to be an artist when you were growing up? It's weird. Like I my. The earliest thing that I wanted to be in my life was an artist. My grandmother was, was an artist, and I oh, always wow. thought that was really cool. And, you know, so I went through several stages, but, you know, I did end up being an artist. So I guess it is, you know, I guess it literally was what I wanted to be when I grew it's up. It's in the blood. First. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of artist was she? Was she a painter? Or? Yeah, she's a painter, yeah. Oh wow! Awesome. So you grew up around both, you know, the the, the military culture and the artistic influence. Yeah, it was exactly. destined. That's great. <laughs> what was your when you got out of art school? What was your first job? Okay, so when I did, I did when I got out of undergrad, um, I was really involved in music and and sound, and I worked for several years doing um, signal processing for digital audio. In other words, trying to figure out how to build tools to do film soundtracks and do, you know, electronic music and that sort of thing. And so I did that for a while and my career fork was really like, do I go and work for Lucasfilm or Skywalker sound and go and work on film or game soundtracks, or do I go in this unknown direction? And mm. to be honest with you, by that time I got, I was so sick of working for other people that I was yeah. like, I'm just, whatever it is, I'm going to figure out something to do that's outside of, you know, a corporate structure for lack of a better word. 
Was that was that scary to think about going and embarking on your own? Because the security, obviously, working for a big company like Lucasfilm must have been pretty enticing. It must be for a lot of young artists. It was too. not for me because I hated it so okay. much. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I mean, what I guess what that taught me, though, is working in that industry is um, I was used to working 18 hours a day, like no problem. Yeah. So when I started going back to school, I just felt like I had this superpower that, you know, I could just work way harder than anybody right. else. And right. so, so I, I did that. And then when I went on and did the PhD, I was like, this is a lot of work, but it's not a lot of work compared to working, you know, at a tech startup. <laughs> you know? yes. So, yes. so I was able to work as an artist and, you know, do that, that work in parallel. Now, having said that, I had no life, no family, no nothing, you know, just, right. just worked. But that was that was my motivation though i mean that's i was really wanting to figure out something that i could do for myself you know yeah i think with so many artists too that i know and my husband's a painter and he actually turned me on to your book and mm -hmm. knew i would like it um it's the work is the thing like i mean so yeah. many you're happiest when you are working yeah uh, and so it's a joy as well as a labor yeah exactly exactly and and so i'm really blessed to be able to to do that you yeah know? Well, the world keeps giving you material too, right? I mean, you're working in these spaces around surveillance and the national security state. Um, talk a little about that because I mean, it's really, I mean, so much of, not to say that everything that you write about is kind of rooted in a post 9-11 world because there's yeah. also, it goes back to Cold War ideas and these kinds of things. But, you know, it, it must be hard sometimes I would imagine just like to pick like, what am I going to focus on? Because there's so much material, uh, you know, in these kinds of spaces and, you know, both from journalism that comes out about it and just even the government talking about it sometimes more. How do you pick and choose what you, what, what pieces of this you want to, you want to work on? I mean, I think I'll, very often I'll look at something and then I'll discover something else while I'm working on that. And then I'll come back to that. So for example, when, when me and AC were working on the Black Sites project, we were, you know, like many people who are researching that, we were tracking airplanes and trying to understand what airplanes was the CIA using and like looking at where the, where they flew as a way to try to get clues as to what the architecture of this, you know, bigger, you know, system looked like. And while I was doing that, I kind of on the side realized, oh, there's these guys who track spy satellites. I got, I got to come back to that someday. Um, so I did. And it's like, okay, let's, let's go talk to these spy satellite guys. Let's learn about orbital mechanics and what is the architecture of secrecy in space, right? And so that that becomes its own project. Um, then at some point, I, I had become friends with the filmmaker, Laura Poitras, mm -hmm. and who was, of course, the, the person that Ed Snowden went to. And she, you know, pulled me over one day and she said, you know, there's this thing that's going to happen. I would love for you to be a part of this project in in some capacity or not there's all these extremely technical documents you know it would be cool if we could look at them and try to understand what in the world they're describing you know what do these what is the what is this mass surveillance infrastructure actually look like mm. that that was something that was not really contained in the documents and so that 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 becomes a project and you work on NSA stuff long enough and you realize, oh, there's these bigger NSAs of sorts called the Googles and the Apples yeah. and the Facebooks of the world. Yeah. And so you start looking at that and then you look at data collection practices and that leads you to things like machine learning and artificial intelligence. So you dive into that and you're like, what's all the crap going on here? Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. so just one thing continually leads to the next you know you, you kind of approach it almost like a journalist would where you sort of you know a foothold in the door and then you start expanding yeah. wider and wider um well you mentioned uh you know surveillance and working with, with laura um uh on the snowden stuff you did a project called code names of the surveillance state that i think mm -hmm. grew out of some of those uh, yeah. names that were revealed talk about that project yeah so i had done a, a pretty simple project in the 2000s um there's a guy named william arkin who's great journalist. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah. he wrote a, he wrote a book called code names that that i just thought was yep. fantastic also and, on my shelf yep okay right and so the book is just you know it's just a, a, it's almost like a dictionary of code names and a lot of them he doesn't know what they are but he's you you're just getting uh this 
it, you know, the code names are very similar to the patches in the sense that here's this weird name that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense on purpose. But you know that there, it has a budget allocated to it. It has an office somewhere. It has people who probably have patches on their uniforms. Yep. Them, that sort of thing. <laughs> so I just I made a piece where I just you know I took a lot of that that work that that that, that William had started and kind of translated that into almost like a found poem. You know, when you when you when you look at you know experimental poetry from like the 1960s or going back to the Dadaists in the 1920s, right. they would create deliberately nonsensical texts that you know were really designed to hold you in that space that we talked about before of like trying to understand something not being able to understand it and ideally inhabiting this space of productive confusion um the code names seem very similar to that to me so fast forward um when we were working on the snowden documents um, one of the developers I worked with, I just said, let's just write a script that's going to crawl all of these documents and pull out everything that's in capital letters. Because uh, <laughs> they're always in capital letters. Yeah. 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 And so we made, made this document that I, just 120,000 entries or something oh, wow. like that. And so um, edited that down. And again, so it was a piece that um, all it is, is, the code names of these projects kind of scrolling through them. And, you know, again, I think of it as this, you know, um, almost like a found poem mm -hmm. where you start to get a sense of the scale mm. of, of the projects and not much else, right? You, you get a sense of the culture perhaps a little bit by yeah. looking at the kind of vocabulary that's used. Um, but, but, but for me, it was, a, it was a, a, a project that again was trying to, inhabit that space of knowing, not knowing, and productive questioning, ideally. And and some of these names are so bizarre and seemingly nonsensical. I think my favorite one that I remember coming out of the Snowden documents was Egotistical Giraffe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, and I, 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 I've, I've heard, you know, people say that they're randomly generated and, you know, and that there's a, well, you know, you often want to wonder if there's actually just like somebody whose job it is to sit there and think through them. Um, but there's a whole like lore around code names. I mean, I think somebody once told me that in, in in MI6, the British Secret Service, I want to say like there was a time when pseudonyms were chosen from a particular phone book from London from like the 1960s right. or something. Um, <clears throat> but when they're presented all together, like you say, I mean, it, you, you get a sense of just the the scale of the apparatus that's right. designed to obscure meaning. And what right. you're trying to do is, you know, enhance meaning by putting them all in one place. Right. And I, and I love that, that tension that exists. And it, it is interesting because, you know, in, in many cases, they're not totally arbitrary. Right. You know, like yeah, in the sense that because you get, my understanding is very often you're given a list of words that you could kind of choose from. Like here's right. five words that could be your se first, second, third. Like able theme. shows up a lot. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you can, so you can put those together. I actually have heard a rumor that egotistical giraffe, um, if I remember correctly, it's some kind of anti-cryptography uh, project. I heard that that's named after a specific person, you know, oh, like wow. that, that, that there is <laughs> this person that they call the egotistical draft, who I think was a tour developer that they were, you know, specific, whose work they were specifically Amazing. trying to target with that program. He's like really tall and has a long neck. <laughs> right. thinks, he's, thinks he's awesome. <laughs> I love that. When you were, when you were getting to work on, um, with Laura on the Snowden papers, I mean, I mean, you, you, by then, I presume you had had some experience digging into archives and things mm -hmm. like that. What was your first impression when you just saw the amount of stuff that there was and, 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 and how revealing it was? Well, it actually really changed my paradigm of, of researching this stuff because I think before that, I would have said, yeah, there are these secret projects, but they kind of kick off a lot of things. You know, they kick off patches and budget documents and you can sort of get a sense of what it is if you're looking at the things around it. And the Snowden documents changed that completely. I said, like, actually, no way. Like, like nobody in the security industry had any idea that any of this stuff was going on. And what the Snowden documents realized, revealed was, like, they don't have magic, right? They haven't invented some quantum computer, what have you. All of the exploits that were described in the documents 
were sort of theoretically known by outside security researchers, mm -hmm. but nobody had thought that anybody would first spend the money and to, you know, have a, have a big enough sense of impunity to actually implement mm -hmm. them at scale. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that, that on one hand, um, was really revealing is like the, was the idea is like, no, you actually can have planetary multi, multi-billion dollar programs and largely keep them secret, you know, both on the political side as well as on the technical side. Right. So that on one hand, other huge revel revelations from the um, Snowden documents, and this is something that I haven't really seen anybody pick up on, has to do with the size of the CIA budget, you mm. know, which I think in the, um, if you had asked, I think most people who study national security before 2013, what's the CIA budget? They would said it's probably one of the smaller intelligence communities, probably five or $6 billion is what that budget was. In the Snowden documents, one of the documents was the, the black budget, and it showed that the CIA budget was actually bigger than the National Reconnaissance Office or the National wow. Security Agency. And so that was a real, that still remains one of history's mysteries, <laughs> as yeah. it were, to me, you know. Did you ever get nervous looking at these documents, realizing that they were so sensitive and so revealing? Uh, and, you know, unlike things that you might find in the National Archives, these are documents that, you know, people like us are not supposed to have in their possession. Yeah, it was terrifying. <laughs> you know, terrifying not only because you're seeing these things and there's a thrill that comes along with that, but there is a sense of fear that comes along with that. But, I mean, with that project in particular, you just kind of knew that there was a lot of people that were interested in this stuff. And some of these people were pretty gnarly. So you could look at that. Some of that would be on the law enforcement side, but you could also imagine there'd be intelligence agencies from other countries mm -hmm. that are far less scrupulous, you know, even than, you know, an FBI or what have you. And so that there is a little bit of sense of danger in, in that case as well. Did you ever worry about your physical safety? Um, not so much with the Snowden documents. No, not not me in particular. Have there been other projects where you were? Well, well, yeah. We think with the um, when when um, AC and I were doing the Black Sites project, we mm. were, you know, kind of poking around in Afghanistan in the middle of the war there and kind of knocking on people's doors who didn't want to have their doors knocked on. And in a place like that, there's really, it's really at that time was kind of a free for all in terms yeah. of violence. You know, so. Yeah. That's it. Uh, you were really being a war reporter. Um, uh, AC is still at ProPublica? Yeah, he's at uh, ProPublica. He's most doing a lot of documentaries for Frontline right now. Mm -hmm. He's been studying for the last few years um far-right extremism in the u.s mm. he just put out a documentary about um the january 6th and kind of what the organizing leading up to that he's just won his third polk award i'm super you know excited for him how'd you guys get connected we know each other from doing punk rock actually really <laughs> yeah <laughs> So we were both really involved in the punk rock scene in Berkeley and the East Bay back in the um, early 1990s. And it was this very, you know, pretty tight knit community of like do it yourself bands and venues. And um, we were both really involved in that. And so that's how we became friends. And then we kind of ended up, he ended up going on this journalism path and I was researching things in my own way and, yeah, just do our lives just, I think our interests just kind of kept us together. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you sing or play an instrument? <laughs> yeah, I played, I, I played the bass, like, it, you know, AC was in, he was in bands as well. You, we did horrible music and toured around and tried to play it for people and <laughs> nobody cared and it was fun. Well, we, <laughs> so. we, we have deep punk roots in DC where I'm from too. So it's, uh, that's great. Yeah. Um, another work that I want to talk about a little bit, and you mentioned this, I think when you got at this idea, when you talked about machine learning and artificial intelligence mm -hmm. uh, is the ImageNet roulette project yeah. um, to describe that for us and, and talk about how you did that. Yeah. So um, that was a, so for about the last 
10 years or so, I've been working on a project about computer vision. And the, the, the basic question that I want to ask is, it's very simple, which is like, how do computers see the world and what do they see? Um, simple question, complicated answer that you can uh -huh. make from many, many different directions. Um, you know, over the last, you know, 10, you know, 12 years or so, um, there's been huge advances in computer vision. And that has um, been enabled by the rise of what's called machine learning. Mm -hmm. And the, this is a, this subset of artificial intelligence that is you know, so widely used right now. And what the, the technique involves creating huge databases of images, labeling those images, and then using a neural network to find patterns across those images. Um, and you know that, that's the basic mechanics of it. So for example, if you train a computer to recognize different fruits in your kitchen, you might have, you know, you want it, you want to build a computer that can recognize oranges, apples, bananas, and you know, grapefruits or what have you. Um, you'd give it a thousand pictures of an orange, thousand pictures of a grapefruit, thousand pictures of a banana. Um, thousand pictures of an apple and it would what the network does is breaks those images down into smaller shapes and patterns mm. so like a sphere perhaps in the case of an orange a kind of deformed sphere in the case of an apple a series of arcs in the case of a banana you know colors you know kind of a pastel yellow maybe in the case of a grapefruit or an orange or a yellow in the case of a banana and then when it sees, so it learns all of those things and, and describes the orange as a collection of statistics, right? So if you have a sphere and if it, it has an orange hue and has probably some kind of gradient and maybe a little green thing at the top, then I'm going to say that's an orange. If you have a set of arcs and a green uh, and a yellow texture with maybe some black dots, we're going to say that's a banana. So that's that's the basic idea of how it works and how you train a computer to recognize things. Now, that is a massively oversimplified example. In real life, when you do this, you can have databases that have millions of images and tens, and tens of thousands of different kinds of categories that you're trying to recognize. And there's a set of standard databases that are used for this type of training in computer vision and machine learning. And the the, the kind of gold standard, the most widely used one is this one called ImageNet that was developed at Stanford between, you know, 2009 and 2011. And it's a collection of images. It's about 14 million images organized into about 20, 20 something thousand categories. And the way they made the training set was they took basically a version of the dictionary called WordNet and they took all of the nouns out of it. And their theory was a noun is something that can that you can have a picture of, right? Um, and so the oranges, apples, what have you. And then they hired um, Amazon, you know, click workers to they had first of all, then they scraped the entire internet of images, Flickr, you know, social media, just everything on the internet they could find. And they hired click workers to organize those images into these categories that were in the dictionary. Now, the problem is that there's terrible stuff in the dictionary, <laughs> mm. like that there are all kinds of words that are racist. There's all kinds of words that are misogynistic and ableist and, you know, just cruel. Mm. And what the researchers, they put together this database, published it. People have been using it for more than a decade as a kind of a gold standard. They never bothered to go and look at what that data actually was. I think their imagination was, oh, 20,000 something categories, 14 million images. How could any human possibly look at all this stuff? So I raised my hand, I spent an afternoon and <laughs> you, you can read 21,000 words in an afternoon, not a problem. <laughs> you know, and yeah, you're like, yeah. wow, this is, this is terrible. Um, and so what I did was I, I wanted to just do a project that showed how easy it was to build machine learning systems that are are terrible you know 
um, and, and that can be quite harmful. And so what I did is I, there was a section in the ImageNet data set that was different kinds of people. And so it would say like scuba diver, cheerleader, boy scout, but then you get uglier and uglier. Mm. And so I took all of the categories of people in all the images of people and we trained a model on that. And then we built a web application where you could upload a picture of yourself and it would show you how this data set would classify you. Oh, wow. How the computer saw you. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, and with all of the, you know, the, the trouble that goes along with that. And so the project was really meant to be a provocation and, uh, and it did, it returned all sorts of horrible results in many cases and people got angry about it. And that was the point. And, you know, the, the project was really only up for a few weeks because it, one of these things that went viral, you know, newspapers were writing about it. And I said, okay, this is the point. I don't want to perpetrate this. I did this right. because I wanted to show it. So I, I took the the site down actually after a few weeks. Um, but I think that it really did contribute to a little bit of soul searching, maybe in the, in the computer science um, field. Um, I know that it was not appreciated in that field um, mm-hmm. for the most part. But at the same time, that was the the intervention that I was trying to make, and I thought that it was I was I was happy with it, and I I think it's just relevant. I don't think people realize the extent to which um, automated classification and evaluation systems are more and more becoming built into uh-huh. the fabric of everyday life. You know, yeah, it, it's something that I think a lot of investigative journalists, or not maybe not a lot, that's it's overstating it. Some are starting to dig into yeah. biases in algorithms. Exactly, yeah, biases in algorithms. That is is one part of it. Another part of it is looking at places. You know, from from I guess from a surveillance slash commercial perspective, these technologies enable new spaces to be opened up. So a great example is truck driving, for example. So in a lot of newer uh, trucking companies, you're a truck driver, you'll have a camera installed that faces forward for insurance purposes, you know, recording if there's an accident or something like that. What they're starting to do now is you actually now have a camera that's pointed at you Mm. inside the truck. And that camera is, has been trained on these machine learning systems and it will try to detect whether you are smoking or whether you are eating or whether you're using your cell phone or whether you get angry or whether you're taking your eyes off of the road and it's classifying you in real time, evaluating your performance. And if you're doing something that the system doesn't like, you know, your boss will get a text message and call you and say, Hey, what are you doing? You're just, you know, playing with your cell phone while you're driving or what have you. So the point that I'm making is that you're, these kinds of technologies are opening up spaces that were previously very inefficient to surveil and making them visible to whoever controls those systems, whether that's, you know, the company, your, your landlord or what have you. And so we're seeing a huge reorganization really of space on one hand and of the, places that that capital has access to i guess on the other and so i think that this you know has some rather dramatic consequences for everyday life as we look forward yeah i mean it says i'm you know thinking about you know creating a system that you know misclassifies people or or does so in a harmful way like if it says you know, if it sees somebody with a darker skin tone and says hmm, mm-hmm. maybe a criminal or something you know right. something obviously harmful it strikes me that that's not only you know, potentially harmful to that person, it's not also not useful as a tool for law enforcement or whoever else might mm-hmm. be trying to use it. And, you know, what I what I um, remember when I was first starting to write about surveillance, and this is, you know, years ago, I wrote a book called The Watchers, which was yeah. about John Poindexter trying to create 
use machine learning right, and exactly, AI yeah. to try and do something uh, analogous. Total to this. information awareness. awareness. Yeah, talk about a logo. Oh my yeah. God, that, that, <laughs> the, the Illuminati pyramid. Yeah, man. <laughs> and he did not understand why this, some people would find this creepy. He's like, "What's the, it's from the Great Seal of the United States?" It's like, oh man, you, you got to read more. Um, but you know, one of the things that that struck me too about that was. Um, not only the risk that it would identify someone incorrectly as a terrorist, but that in theory, anyway, it might fail to find the real terrorist. And so mm-hmm. and there's always this kind of, for me, it was always this double-edged part of it where it could be actively harmful to one person in one respect and then not particularly useful in the other. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if the, the systems are getting any better at, you know, a, a better, quote unquote, at being more accurate. Um but they're always, it seems to me, going to be inflected by whatever kind of like values or judgments or programming the person puts into it. I mean, the machine, Absolutely. the machine learning is almost a misnomer. It's learning based on how we tell it to learn. It seems to me. It's based on, and 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 I think the thing to also recognize is that it's it's a fundamentally quantified way of seeing and of perceiving, and there. Much of real life isn't like that. Much of real life is contextual, is highly qualitative. And those are the things that kind of get left out, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing, one of the other pieces of work that you've done too is actual photographs of satellites as they're mm-hmm. kind of traveling across the sky. Yeah. And I guess you're probably doing time delay photography to yeah. capture this. Yeah. Um, it, it's something that, you know, the ability to track satellites is not all that different, I guess, from people's ability to track flights now with things right. like, you know, open like flight aware and this kind of kind of data. Um, it must be really fun as, as an artist to be able to know that you can just go find where these things are going to be and then just kind of show up and shoot them. Man, yes. Yeah, so my background is obviously in art and in, you know, the more um, qualitative side of, of social sciences. And so I, when I started doing that project of, of trying to locate and photograph spy satellites. I was in my office at Berkeley one day. I was doing a bunch of math, trying to figure out this whole thing. I was like, okay, I think that tonight, if I go stand in the Berkeley Hills and I look at this star at this time, I should be able to see this, you know, with the lacrosse satellite as a radar imaging satellite. And went out there, set up a telescope, pointed at the sky, looked at the right time and boom, there it was. Wow. I was like, this is unbelievable for to somebody who's, you know, this is like someone coming from the arts or humanities, like the idea that you're going to make a prediction about something that's going to happen in the world. And then it happens. Right. This, I could, I, I was like, okay, I get it. <laughs> you know, in terms of like that, that allure of, 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 of science, I guess, for a lack of a better word. Um, I wasn't able to reproduce that for another year. It was total oh, wow. beginner's luck. It was, oh, I, wow. was, it was a gift because I think if I had failed, then I was like, well, this is above me. I can't really do this. Um, but yeah, no, what's, but what's interesting about satellites is that they, they have to follow very well understood, you know, celestial mechanics. Right. And so you can, if you have a couple of good observations of a satellite, you can largely predict where it's going to be. I mean, they do orbital maneuvers and that sort of thing a little bit here and there, but you usually know what kind of a new maneuver they're going to do. And so you can take advantage of that. Um, so yeah, for, for many years, I've been going out trying to, you know, every time the NRO launches a satellite, try to look where it goes, try to go out and photograph it. And again, you the images are very abstract. You know, it's like a star field or some clouds and you see a little streak going through it. And so you again, get that quality of seeing that you're seeing something and also seeing that you're not seeing it at the Mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for me, it's again, finding that ambiguous space. Um, But it's gotten a lot weirder, you know, I don't know how much you're tracking what's going on in, in space, but, um, there's a lot of weird stuff now. You're seeing more and more that you weren't seeing in the past. Like what? And, you know, things like um, interceptors, really, mm-hmm. the satellites that are designed to intercept other kinds of satellites. Um, stuff that you just don't really know why it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in earlier generations of satellites, you would see the satellite in this polar orbit, you know, that's, that's a reconnaissance orbit. That's definitely an imaging satellite, even if 
everything isn't secret about it. If you see something in geostationary orbit and it's really bright and it's, you know, over, you know, Asia or the Middle East, you're like, that's yeah. a signal, it's intelligence satellite. Right, that's right, what right. that is, you know. Um, so there's that that's changing a little bit now. Those are those still those big systems are very much still part of the game, but we're seeing a lot more smaller systems, experimental systems, systems that are more about situational awareness on one uh-huh. kind thing in space and and to you know, potentially making interventions in space in ways that can be deniable. This makes me think about one of my my favorite uh, orbital vehicles that just fascinates me, which is the X-37B. Oh, yeah. Which is the thing that looks like a mini space shuttle orbiter. Um, And it can go up and it can come down. It's kind of reusable. And and it's it's led to all kinds of speculation. What's it doing up there? It's flying around. Is it grabbing other satellites? Is it deploying some? Um, Does that kind of fall into the category of weird stuff that's that's up there? That's a perfect example of weird stuff that's up there. Um, the X thirty seven B's patch is really funny. It has yeah. uh, it has the X from the X files, and then it says thirty seven B at the bottom. <laughs> I love that they're just these patches are also just trolling people. Oh yeah, completely. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be it's part of the fun too. So you get to have a little wink and a nod to like, yeah, yeah, we know this is a super secret thing. Is there any? And as you see these, um, you know, other satellites going up, and you know, as you said, situ- creating situational awareness in space. I mean, what misgivings do you have about that if you? I mean, is it is it is are we seeing more of like a militarization of space, or what 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 do you think this is heading towards that troubles you? I mean, I that, that's an interesting question. I'm I'm not sure that my thinking has gotten to the point of evaluation yet. Mm, okay. In the sense, I'm not nostalgic about space, or I'm not I not nostalgic is the wrong word, but I'm not I'm cynical about space, I guess. Like, I don't think about it as this frontier and this thing, you know, space has always been militarized, always is going to be militarized. You know, spaceflight was not developed to, you know, do high-speed internet, was developed to deliver nuclear weapons. And that's still, you know, that's what it is to a large extent. Um, So in terms of looking at that, I think we're, you're just seeing the basically a theory of warfare change, mm-hmm. right? And you're seeing um, space becoming contested, I guess, in, in a way that was a little bit less true mm-hmm. in the past. Um, there was an outer space agreement in the 60s. Um, there was some anti-satellite stuff being done in the 70s. The Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, I think, largely ended that in the 80s, but that's been turned back on now. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing um, a lot of uh, capabilities being developed in space to um, try to have some kind of dominance over that area, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and I know when I <clears throat> hear from people in the military in particular and especially senior level people who are thinking about strategy, you'll often hear them say that in future conflicts, you know, the first shots or the first mm-hmm. battles will be fought in cyberspace and in outer space. And they yeah. really do see China as the main yeah. threat and adversary for strategic kind of peer competition uh, in space. And, and And you're right. I mean, as much as we have kind of a romantic kind of idea about exploration and you know human ingenuity and that's part of space travel it was you know it was the military that got there first and there's Mm -hmm. it's always had this current of militarization and weaponization under it um what do you think about sort of private space ventures like what elon musk or bezos are doing i mean to me it's so silly that people call these private (laughs) space ventures i mean because their their customer is the government i mean what are you talking about spacex is competing with lockheed martin it's a a government contractor yeah 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 so i mean i think and i I don't think space works as a private thing it's so expensive for such a specific capability that I, I don't, if you, spaceflight would not happen, I think, without the Cold War, to be honest with you. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you go back to, you know, uh, you know the right stuff and Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier and, you know, and 
and rockets are being developed, you know, in World War II and Warner von Braun and all these people who have a kind of rooting in a military culture that was about competition with strategic adversaries. The space Mm -hmm. race is a race to get people to build ICBMs, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of that. And it's just to- so it's so expensive and and honestly so dangerous that yes. the idea that there's going to be a, a private industry around that that is you know fully funded by civilian money is really hard for me to imagine. Yeah, the danger element came into it was there was some gallows humor in our newsroom when um, the owner of our newspaper you know shot himself into space on a rocket one afternoon. We're like, we really would like it if you came back, right? <laughs> like maybe this is not the best use of your time. And then and then I made a joke too when when he when they sent William Shatner up. I'm like, okay, if you kill Captain Kirk, that's actually <laughs> going to be worse for Amazon in the future for paper than if you killed yourself. <laughs> but there is something romantic about it, but you're right. It's like you're just kind of going up and down in a rocket. And like, mm-hmm. we've kind of done that. So yeah. uh, it's just that. Um, well, we're, we're at the end of our, our time here. But before I let you go, uh, it is the tradition on Chatter that the last question is I reach into this here Chatterbox mm-hmm. uh, and I ask you a pre written question uh, totally okay. at random. So I'm going to reach in here and see what we have. Okay, so this is actually this is this is a good one. You get to put your policymaker hat on here and pretend oh, you're no. a policymaker. Oh, I'm terrible at this. <laughs> um, the question is: If you could convince the president to take one discrete action today related to national security, what would it be? You know, I I think of national security in a really different way than many other people. I guess, like for me, national security, I it bothers me that that becomes equated with like the military and with law enforcement and that sort of thing. And I I think about what are the things that make me feel secure in my life, having a place to stay, having enough food to eat, having access to healthcare, to not be preyed upon by lenders or advertisers Mm -hmm. or data brokers or or Mm -hmm. what have you. And so I think that if this is not a good answer in terms of policy, but the way that I would answer the question is like, we really need to redefine what national security is, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this is, I mean, in, in so much of what we've learned through things like the Snowden files and other work and, and work that you people like you do in bringing secret things to life is the degree to which personal safety and security is impinged on sometimes and is affected by you know, what we think of as the security for the state, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when, and, and people intuitively get that, uh, but we kind of keep re- having to relearn that lesson, it seems mm-hmm. to me. It's something that, you know, policymakers, are, <laughs> they're off doing the uh, firing rockets into space and building mm-hmm. bigger missiles. Uh, but I think that's a great answer. Um, Trevor Paglin, <clears throat> this has been so fascinating and so interesting. Um, thank you for coming on. I love your work. People can thank go you. check it out at your website. They can find your books uh, and encourage everyone to go do that. And uh, thanks for spending some time on Chatter. Thank you so much, Shane. It's great to meet you. And thanks so much for having me. It's great talking to you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Thank you.